0: Betty, I'm Marilyn, CEO and founder of Cosmic Centres and your host for today's session of the third edition of the annual Cosmic Conference. Might I say I'm a little bit biased, but today is probably my favorite session. Um, We've been working so hard to, I shouldn't say this to the other speakers, but it's because it's the one I'm most, let's say, emotionally attached to. Uh, As you know, our conference is all about the employee experience and we've been exploring this topic through a variety of lenses. Um, But today, we're going to be talking about research work that Connie and the team at Cosmic Centers have been working on for the last six months. I'll tell you all about that in a second. In the meantime, the conference runs until October 21st. We have three more sessions until the end of the week. Don't miss out on those. We'll uh, drop the link to our conference website in the comments. You can also go back and re-watch all the other sessions we've had. I think in total, we'll end up having had 16 live events in, in three weeks. So lots to learn. Um, we hope you enjoy them. Before we begin, as always, show us some love, um, give us a like, tell us where you're joining from, and do ask questions. I think there must be a lot of questions today based on all of the stuff we're going to share let me just quickly introduce dr connie hadley those of you who are regulars might remember that she was the first guest of the second season of center stage but let me introduce her nonetheless um, Connie Hadley is an organizational psychologist and the founder of the Institute for Life at Work. She also serves as a lecturer at Boston University's Questroom School of Business and a consulting researcher at Microsoft Research Labs. Dr. Hadley is an expert and well-known speaker on topics such as the future of work, team dynamics, psychological safety, employee loneliness, well-being at work, and inclusive cultures. Her 2021 paper with Another great friend, Mark Mortensen, titled Are Your Team Members Lonely, won the prestigious Richard Beckard Memorial Prize for the most outstanding MIT Sloan Management Review article on planned change and organizational development. Her research and commentary has been widely published in Harvard Business Review, The Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, The New York Times, Fortune, Wired, Forbes, and other news and academic outlets. Um, Previously, she worked in management consulting at McKinsey & Co. and in marketing and operations at General Mills, Inc. Dr. Hadley serves as a mentor to many low-income, first-generation students and sits on the Board of Trustees at McLean Hospital, a leader in mental and behavioral health. Connie, I am... Hella excited to see (laughs) you.
1: I'm so happy to be here. This is so much fun. Thank you for having me. And this is our big debut of some of our research findings. So I'm looking forward
0: to it. Can you believe we made it? So a little bit of a background story on how we got to be in this virtual room today. Um, As some of you might remember, last year for the uh, Cosmic Conference um, 2021, we had run an original survey. You know, the Cosmic was around, the conference was around the future of teams, and we designed and ran um, another survey that kind of really was a very broad survey Mm -hmm. in the amount of topics that it was trying to, to cover and explore. Uh, And the beauty is that we found in that survey some data that, you know, made us look at it and be like, haha, we feel like we found something interesting and and worthy of our our further exploration. And Mark Mortensen, who we mentioned a second ago, I was telling him about this. And he's like, do you mind if I share this data with my colleague, Connie Hadley? I think she'd find it interesting. And that's kind of how this adventure started. Connie and I met, we started talking, she came on Center State, you know, we found a lot of Um, commonality and shared passion and at some point said how about we do another survey together to explore more of this so it's it's a it's a testament also to like um, you know building relationships and Mm -hmm. um, and just talking to someone just because you have things in common we we spoke for a long time before we had any like specific project to work on Um, I've had a lot of you know not a lot but a few friendships developed that way during the pandemic and it's been such a wonderful blessing so i'm very grateful connie that you you gave me that time and that space and that we found so many things that we we share and love uh, and has led us to our first project together hopefully one of many Uh, if you've been spammed by me uh asking you to fill out a survey this one's for you we have the results. Um, and so we'll talk about what we've discovered, uh, what we now know about you know mutual knowledge, the importance of uh, team purpose, how it links to job meaning and satisfaction. We'll talk about you know answering questions like you know does mutual knowledge impact how much meaning we find in our job? Are we less likely to quit? Are team rituals real thing mm-hmm. or just a pandemic gimmick that we all mm-hmm. just fell into um, during that period? And in light of all the debates and discussions that we're having globally around, yeah, the Great Resignation, but also the crisis of trust in organizations, I think it's a very important and timely moment to have this discussion. So with that, let's begin. I'm going to share my screen uh, and walk us through just a little bit of an introduction. Here we go. Um, So just also in terms of explaining like how we came to the hypothesis that we're trying to test. So of course, I don't know I didn't know a lot, and Connie taught me quite a bit about like statistics and how to run surveys and how to you know um, create meaningful relationships between concepts. But when we started thinking about this, um, it was more of a of an instinct, let's say. And if we look at the world the way it is today and how we've been you know the the kind of news we've been hearing from organizations over the last you know couple of years, uh, a lot of sometimes very negative things have come out. Particularly if we look at the topics we're going to be exploring together today. We're looking at, of course, the great resignation, people thinking about quitting their jobs. Uh, we're looking at 23% of employees only actually feel connected to their organization's purpose. We're looking at only half of employees finding meaning in their work. And of course, like you could find dozens and dozens of other data points to show that there is a bit of a crisis in organizations. And we're hoping to contribute um, to how we can mend um, the way forward. Um, And when it comes to purpose, it's going to be a topic we discuss a lot today. We know that purpose, if if there was a need for a business case, the business case is obvious, right? Um, Purpose-driven employees are more likely to feel fulfilled at work. They're promoters of their organizations. They're more likely to stay in a company and keep their knowledge and capabilities. And we know how important that is. Organizations that are purpose-driven are two times more likely to experience positive growth, um, 10% higher levels of growth, um, and of course, more likely to retain their workforce. Um, and so, in you know, and again, you could go on the internet and you'll find miles and miles of data about this topic. And again, as practitioners, uh, of course, we're lovers of like academic research and knowledge and we're geeks and we love to kind of dig through. One of the first actually... Um, let's say, interesting stories that that we dug up on the Cosmic Center side, early days, actually, you can go back, my first presentation ever, I think, had a mention of of this cultural um, artifact, which is um, something called Dunbar's Number. If you've been to a few of my uh, interventions, I I often bring it up. And it kind of was at the basis of our instinct, uh, which is, let me talk a little bit about Dunbar's Number. So Dunbar's an anthropologist, and he did research around human communities. And what he found is that, when a community is formed of less than 150 individuals, communities can kind of maintain themselves through social ties. So it's enough that I know Connie and she knows me and we know Tala, and that kind of is enough for us to form a community and also behave and like not, you know, um, not do anything hurtful, et cetera, et cetera. But what what he also found is that above that number, um, in kind of the original settlers, homo, homo sapiens communities, that's also when we start to find the emergence of organized religion, but also of like creating a shared purpose for the community, creating norms and laws and rituals. Right. And of course, being not an academic, I very easily take these concepts and I'm like, great, this applies to companies because, <laughs> you know, without any concern for whether that's true or not, but, <laughs> but, um, Oh, like, you know, like believing in the, in the sun, feels like what would translate into a shared purpose for an organization. Because in the end, a company is a common story that we all believe in, right? So if we kind of simplify the concept, and in order to reinforce that story, of course, we have norms and laws and ways we're expected to behave and performance and KPIs and whatever. But we also create rituals to reinforce that purpose and to kind of come together as a community around it. So I'm going to stop talking. But that was the basis of what made us want to find out whether that was actually, whether this like very simple parallel that I drew in the early days of discovering this concept was actually true and whether having rituals did reinforce purpose and whether that really did lead to a positive outcome for organizations. So hmm. yeah, I've set the scene for how we got here. I'm going to hand it over to you, Connie, to to walk us through what we've learned uh, in exploring these topics.
1: Thank you. Well, I, I wanted to just say a couple things before we leave this slide. Um, I actually wasn't familiar with Dunbar's uh, research or this magic number before we started talking, Marilyn, but I really like it because I think what it does is, is emphasize two key points. One is that the larger your group grows, the more intentional you have to become about what it is that creates this whole team, this whole group organization. in a a way that you can't just do, you know, assume that people will figure it out, assume that people will understand each other, connect with each other and so forth. You actually have to build in structures and processes the larger you get. So that's one thing um, that is very consistent with what we know about organizational behavior. The other thing that this connects to is um, really important work done by Edgar Schein, a sociologist out of MIT, who has long identified different aspects of culture and how to build a culture. And one of the key things that you can do is create artifacts. And and his definition of artifacts is anything that you can kind of use your five senses to absorb. So things that you can see and hear and touch and clothing and signs and anything that's around you can be an important carrier of culture and rituals are in that category. Something that you do in a repeated basis becomes ingrained as a symbol of something meaningful to that organization. So those are, those are two reasons of sort of the practical aspect of things you need to create intentional processes to connect people, the larger you get, but also just thinking about it in terms of what, what are you conveying in the content of those rituals? It is about what you care about your values, the cultural norms that you're trying to enforce. So it's a great segue to talking about our research. Um, before I, I go further in terms of talking about what we studied and why, I just want to really acknowledge that this was a big team effort. And certainly on your side, Marilyn, we couldn't have done anything without the, the sponsorship and leadership of Cosmic Centaurs. And I know as a researcher, I really appreciate anyone who says, will collect the data for you. Um, that is like the amazing things uh, for a researcher to hear. Um, but you also contributed so much to the design and the content of the survey based on your work. And a special shout out to uh, Maya Tanus and, and Tal Oda, who helped us kind of craft the uh, the survey itself and administer it. And then on the analysis side, I want to shout out to Maya Mahfouz who has joined us um, as an as a, as a adjunct researcher and she's been incredibly helpful in every aspect of the design and execution and analysis. So hi to everybody out there who helped with this. I also wanna say hi and thank you to everybody who took the survey, who hopefully is watching this. There will be additional more detailed reports that we'll be presenting from the survey results. We're just gonna give you a, a, a quick taste here because these results are hot off the presses and we haven't had time to do the exhaustive analysis of, of the data yet. But um, again, this is just a big team effort. and It's been a real joy for me to join up with practitioners and researchers around the globe on this project. So thank you. And now for what we were looking for. Um, as uh, As, uh, Marilyn, you were saying here, we really were focused on building on your previous survey to test out in a more concentrated manner some of the findings that we found. With, With the more scattershot kind of broad survey that was done last year, we wanted to be more focused with this one. And specifically, we were zoning in on what are the actual behavioral rituals that teams do that help them get to know each other on a personal level, as well as a professional level. And then to the degree they employ those rituals, how does that affect how people feel about the team itself? And we looked at aspects of the culture like psychological safety, but also how committed are people to the actual mission and purpose of the team in relation to how well they know each other. So we kind of were making the leap from knowledge to purpose. And then from purpose, we wanted to validate what we are seeing in other research that says a purpose really is powerful for, for the employee experience. And two of the key variables we looked at there were job satisfaction and people's intent to stay. So we actually asked them, for example, how often do you think about quitting this job? And that's the high-level view. We, again, looked at lots of different variables that I won't have a chance to to go into too much detail on today. More to come on those. But really, again, what we're trying to think about is, is what is the behavior that teams do that creates connection and knowledge? How does that result in a coherent purpose, a mission? And then how does that make people want to continue doing their jobs despite the adversity that we've all faced over the last few years and all the temptations that are out there to, to think about additional opportunities that might be there. So I'll, I'll, I'll go into a little more detail next on the rituals. Um, before we designed the survey and categorized the rituals, we did some interviews, and those are fascinating. I loved, I loved, especially for me personally, that we talked mostly to people in the Middle East which is not a population that I can typically access easily from here in Boston. Uh, and people are universal. So the, the findings are not specific to the Middle East, but it was really good to see the same kind of patterns that I've been seeing over here in the States also um, happening over there. And so here we just pulled a couple quick quotes here from some of those preliminary interviews. We ask someone what brings meaning to them in their work, and you can see that they're thinking about the higher purpose and the impact of themselves and the team and how well they're they're actually executing on that. But also, we heard over and over again that there's something about my connection to the team itself that determines how much I feel that our mission is valid. And then the second one is a quote from someone who's experienced that strong tie and said, you know, this to me is the, the, the experience that I am looking for. And I do not plan to leave this job with this team unless I could find the same kind of aspects of connectedness and uh, openness and transparency that I found in this team. So that really motivated us and confirmed some of our, our hypotheses about this. And then we went about designing what are some examples of rituals that teams might have. Um, in terms of who we studied then, again, thank you to everyone on this call who was able to participate in the survey. And if you didn't, don't worry, there'll be future opportunities to come. Um, but we did this data collection over the summer, which is great because we can really say that this is not uh, in the heart of the pandemic experience. This is as people are emerging from the pandemic and thinking about what's next in their in their life and their careers. And we measured these types of variables here and we had um, 520 people who filled it out from around the world, um, Note that they were had to be on a team because we really cared about the team unit here. Uh, we did have to screen out people who, who reported that they weren't working on teams themselves. Um, here, I don't know um, if it's possible to see in detail all the different charts here, but we have a, a broad sample. Uh, we have almost an equal balance of men and women in the sample. We find people who are... Uh, more junior level managers or individual contributors to up to senior level managers in our population. We also looked at different age ranges. Our, our um, biggest population are certainly the, um, the millennials and, and Gen X. We have broad range of company sizes. About half were under 100 employees and about half were over 100 employees. The teams themselves also ranged, but for the most part, we'd say they were 10 and under in terms of number of team members, which is, by the way, a good a good metric of like a, a, a team size so you can get your arms around and then we looked at things like geographic diversity we were interested in knowing like how far flung are the different team members on this uh, team and you can see a really nice uh, variety there in terms of some who were really co-located others kind of had some people in different one or two other places and then we had a good third of people who were quite far flung and people all around the world and then finally we asked about their pattern of remote work and much as we've seen at a global level among knowledge workers, there's kind of two anchors at, the, at either end. We have about 27% who were working fully in the office and 27% who were working fully remote. And then the middle, the 42, 46% or so of people working hybrid in some fashion. And we looked at how many days a week that they were working hybrid. So overall, what I hope you take from this background here is that we, we had a good sample. We had a good sample with lots of variety in it. The common characteristic everyone shared was that they were operating on a team. Now one of the the things we we were curious about was how well do they feel they know each other on their team? And we, we measured that and found that in general, people marked pretty high levels of personal and professional knowledge. But then we followed up with another question and this really came out of our interviews. We asked them, all right, so based on how much you know, how much more do you want to know personally about your teammates or professionally about them? And is there any chance you want to know less? And I wanted to make sure we included this because I remember one interview we did back in April where I was surprised by this person who had just extolled all the virtues of his team. When I said, do you want to know more about your teammates? He said, no, actually, I feel like we talk too much. And I think he was representative of what you see in this far left little purple Uh, bar here where you do find a small portion of people who are saying, you know what, let's dial down the amount of knowledge sharing. But it seems to be only on the personal types of information. So I can imagine there are some teams out there who might feel that people are oversharing perhaps about their personal lives in a way that may make some people uncomfortable. But those really are the exceptional situations. For the most part, what we see here in this data is that people feel that either they want to keep the consistent level of sharing that they have right now, or they'd like to increase. And you can see here on the right-hand side for the people who are looking to learn more about their teammates, a lot of it is about professional information. And I'll share with you a little bit more about some rituals uh, in a second that might reveal some ways to get to know that professional knowledge. So this is is something that tells us that, that people still feel that there are gaps. There are gaps in the degree of team knowledge, and those are not sitting well with people. They'd like to fill those in. So how can you fill those in? Um, There there are ways, simply one-off conversations can be helpful, or maybe providing like a bio online could be a way of communicating information. But for our study, we we were interested in these ritualistic, routine types of forums to collect information. And again, it goes back to this idea that you have to be intentional to create these kinds of conduits of bonding and connection among a group of people, and that these things become more comfortable over time the more you do them. So that's where rituals come in here instead of just one-off. Conversations. So, some examples of ways to build personal knowledge on teams, some rituals here is this list. Now, this list was generated based on, Marilyn, what you and Cosmic Centaurs have been advising and seeing in your own consulting work, as well as what I've studied on my, in my research and in, in our interviews, the kinds of activities that people revealed in the interviews as being helpful to them. So, here are five um, that we measured. We looked at social events outside of the, the work itself, using specific kinds of prompts or icebreakers to have people get to know each other. I mean, things as silly as, you know, what is the the, the song you would play if you had to, you know, pick your walk on music to go on stage. Um, also, we'd looked at personal milestones. I know, Marilyn, you have a theory that if you don't know each other's birthdays, you don't know something pretty fundamental about each other. It doesn't have to be a big cake celebration, but maybe just knowing something that's very personal to someone um, on that level could be helpful. A team calendar with birthdays, um, for example, might help prompt some of those conversations about it. Um, But also just things like checking in with each other emotionally. Um, This doesn't also have to be about the pandemic, but just are you regularly asking each other like, hey, how are you? And I know you have some tools that you use at Cosmic Centaurs to facilitate those conversations like with Aeon. And then last, how much do you know the different cultural backgrounds of each other? Uh, And this can be a celebration of different holidays, for example. So these are the kinds of rituals that we identified can be helpful for personal knowledge sharing. And then the next um, set are the ones that can help build professional knowledge. And one of them is just actually conveying your work history, your professional background. I am amazed every time I do a workshop with executives, how much we learn in the conversation of a couple of hours based on the questions I ask them. Um, Just a quick example for uh, recently, I did a uh, exercise with a group of education leaders and I asked them because we were doing a simulation of climbing Mount Everest, who had climbing experience? And this wasn't professional knowledge per se, but it was amazing when we went around the room how many people had some really interesting background information, whether it's something that they had studied in graduate school or something they experienced in their life, that actually could be really relevant in that simulation. So if you apply that to a work situation, having a conversation to say like, hey, we're about to embark on designing a new product in this space. Does anybody have any relevant experience from their past history that could be at play here? you'd be amazed how often you'll find yes answers to that, but no one ever typically asks. So another um, example of this is having frequent stand-up or brief team meetings. Now, yes, these could be just put in the category of basic team processes that are helpful, but if you're using them to continually reinforce the knowledge that each person has and allow them to bring that forward, then that will again, it strengthens the degree to which you know what to expect and what can um, what you can go to each other for through those types of forums. Team retrospectives, that's a great tool again for general team effectiveness, but also for sharing the perspectives that people have in the room about how the work got done and what could be improved. Looking to hold some forums about sharing other type tips and knowledge, so lunch and learns, for example or other types of activities where people can just share things that may be sort of related to the work but not directly on target, can also broaden the sphere of understanding among teammates. Another one is about how you treat new employees. So some, some people we studied don't have a formal process for onboarding new employees, and it's not that common to even just go out of your way to welcome those new employees. These rituals are really important as well because they will help each person find their fit within the team. And they'll feel that their their contributions professionally are welcomed and needed. So that's the long list of the 11 different rituals that we studied here. And now I'll show you some brief data on how that worked out in terms of whether teams were using them or not. And this is the the teams who uh, the, the representative said they definitely do this on a regular basis. So you can see here that overall the professional types of rituals were more common than the personal ones. The professional ones are in the darker blue and the personal ones are in the light peach. But we have a marker here, well, the 50% line, you can see that still lots of teams don't do any of these at all, um, which is something for you to think about as you evaluate your own teams. Like, are you going through this list? Are there these these rituals or maybe other ones you have in place? If not, the our argument is that it will have some limits then to the amount of knowledge and comfort that people have with each other, which will ultimately affect both the team's work, but also how people feel about their jobs. We also um, looked at the impact of doing these kinds of rituals on commitment to the team's per. per- Purpose. excuse me. So we find that answers our very first research question. Yes, absolutely. The data is clear in our study that the number of rituals that your team employees did correlate strongly and positively with how committed the person felt to the purpose of the team. And then we looked at purpose, And we said, how does that relate to these outcomes about job satisfaction and intention to stay or fewer thoughts of quitting? And that was very, very highly correlated. These numbers are over over Um, 0.49 here. And that shows that, yes, this explains a lot of the variance in people's feelings about their job and their intention to stay is whether or not they believe in the team's purpose and whether they feel motivated and committed to it, which, again, relates to how well they know each other. So overall, our study at the highest level did confirm what we expected to find. Um, and then we did a couple of pressure tests. So this is um, sort of the, one of my little nerdy academic slides here that kind of conveys a little bit more detail about a regression analysis in which we pitted um, these factors against each other into predicting this one particular outcome of job satisfaction. And we actually entered the background variables on the people in a block first, to make sure we could argue that these were not just due to some kind of feature of the team itself, and the four that we looked at were how big the team was, how big the te- um, how big the organization was, whether the team worked remotely or in person together, and then how um, ge- geographically dispersed the team was in terms of its membership. And of those, we find that none of them related to job satisfaction, except for team geographic diversity. So the more diverse the team was in terms of where people were located, the higher the job satisfaction. But then beyond that, we looked at the team rituals and the purpose, those two other important conceptual variables that we had. And you can see here, they're kind of like already at the highest limits of, of satisfaction. Like you can't go you can't get more significant than these results. So we do see that it's not just about the design of the team itself, it's about what the team is doing together that make a big difference. And when you do those rituals, you have that higher purpose, you're gonna find higher job satisfaction. So those are the key findings that we have. I don't think I need to go into like too much detail on the takeaways here. I'm happy to discuss them with you, Marilyn, but I just wanna sort of um, hit a couple highlights here One is that you know, keep thinking about as a team how to create that sense of purpose. You'll need to design your own rituals. These are a good starting list for you that we looked at, but we're not saying that these are the only and the most important ones, but they do matter. Um, And I can talk a little bit more in detail about which ones seem to matter in particular. But overall, the point here is embed these in your team process so that people can feel, they know each other better personally and professionally and therefore get tighter as a team and feel more committed to its purpose. And with that, I'm going to shut off our slides and let us have a conversation. Actually, I don't know how to shut off our slides.
0: You to <laughs> oh, you have a slide. Great. <laughs> I'll do it. I'll just say also, um, as Connie was mentioning, like you can use existing rituals or you can design your own. Uh, what we'll do is the team will link these for you in the comments as well and then t- you know, just before we move to—I I mean, I have a lot of follow-up questions, and and there's already uh, a few from the audience. We have a worksheet about how to create a workshop to design your own rituals. So kerma will link that in the comments we also have a ritual bank so like we collect rituals when we see a ritual we love we just post it there so you can go there for inspiration um of course you can watch all the sessions of the cosmic conference because you will always always learn something you know about how to improve the experience uh, and we linked a resource that we liked and i think um the folks over at Future Forum also have a similar recommendation around building that kind of team charter, the team norms, the playbook, whatever you want to call it, um, that we think is also a great way to kind of create a foundation of trust and shared understanding of how people work together. So just a little bit of resources here, and then um, I'll remove the the slide deck and, and kind of Connie, first of all. Before I do anything, I want to thank you so much for being my partner on this and for like so wholeheartedly engaging in this process. Um, it's it really felt like uh, I mean, it is we having a kindred soul, like just so curious about this stuff. And and, you know, as far as team purpose goes, I really felt like our team had a very strong purpose it, and that's what got us together. Um, and it, you know, just even reflecting on this group of people who've never met in person mm-hmm. at all ends of the globe, um, collaborating on this. Um, I mean, mine is having like, uh, you know, we did do the check-in rituals so mm-hmm. that you know, I felt like uh, this is a perfect representation, right? Um, and so i'm I just want to start off by by thanking you with all my heart for being you know so collaborative and so willing to engage on this with us. Um, this is a topic that has always been very important for us as an organization because the argument from the beginning is that we've you know organizations have become like a temple for rationalization, right mm-hmm. and, and making everything efficient and improving productivity. And along the way, oftentimes we forget to celebrate humanity and create space for it. So, um, such, so wonder also, I have to say, like when I was opening the survey results as you know, that Maya Mahfouz had kind of analyzed and sent to me, I, I had like only one eye open. I was like, I <laughs> wanted to say, uh, I'm so happy to see that it did mm-hmm. um, maybe just a couple follow up questions on the research itself before we move on to also discussing what, what leaders, organizations, and employees can do in light of, you know, all of this, um, what was something beyond the stuff that we've shared that was very surprising uh, in our results?
1: Uh, Well, actually I was surprised by a couple things. One, I was surprised about that question that asked um, how much more knowledge do you want? Not so much that if there were kind of people wanting less, it was on the personal side, I kind of expected that, but I was surprised how many people are craving more professional background knowledge of each other. Um, that it seems to me, again, to your point of most teams are like productivity machines and, and that you would think the relevant information would be out there. But I don't think it it is as commonly as you would expect. Um, so that's one thing. And then the second was I was surprised, even though we, we put it in there as a control. I was surprised by the uh, positive significance of geographic diversity in terms of predicting job satisfaction. And the fact that that was more relevant even than the remote work mode that people um, were experiencing when we collected the data. Um, So we can talk a little bit more about why that might be the case, but that's going to be something we'll be drilling down on more in our subsequent analyses.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, to your point about professional knowledge, um, just this week, I was talking to someone who's in contact with us about a potential workshop um, and they were telling, it's a second workshop that they're doing for a leadership team. So they had feedback from their previous one. And in fact, the leadership team said, like, enough of the, I don't need to know what Marilyn's, like, cat's name is. <laughs> I, would, I want to know, you know, what her um, abilities at work are. And it's it's fascinating to see that. I just, and and in the beginning of the pandemic, again, we also had a client where we did this for them. We just created a really simple Google Doc. Hmm. And we wrote down questions that were professional knowledge and personal knowledge. Right. And you were completely like, it wasn't mandatory to fill it out. It was up to you. Um, And it's incredible, like in, especially in larger organizations, um, just people don't even know what project somebody else is assigned Hmm. to. We'll talk about that in a second. Maybe it's also a a function of multi-teaming because people end up not just being part of one team, but many. And so as a, as a, professional you're actually doing a lot of things that are not visible to the different groups that you're a part of um but it's 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 fascinating to me and and it's so easy to solve like every time this happens i'm like surely this global company doesn't have this problem and then it turns out that it does and i'm like okay so we can yeah. we can go back to basics amazing
1: you know um well, but, theory, uh, yeah go for all right, it. i want to follow up on that though one really quick because uh, I also think that um, the answers to that question about what kind of knowledge you want more, I think I'm not just undermining the validity of what people are are concerned about, but I also want to say that when we looked at the rituals individually of the mm-hmm. 11 rituals. And we try to correlate those with the the outcome of job satisfaction. It actually wasn't the professional ones that rose to the top in terms of that connection. So the the top two were, were how much you check in with each other emotionally and how much you share your cultural um, background with each other in terms of the connection to those personal employee experiences. So I wonder too, if there's something about how people are kind of misunderstanding how important personal knowledge is of each other. They're not seeing that connection as clearly as we see it in the data.
0: Yeah, maybe, I mean, again, complete like mashup of frameworks here, but maybe there's a bit of a Maslow's approach to this, which is like people need the professional thing first in order to elevate mm-hmm. to the second layer. And when they feel like they don't have that, they find the second layer useless. Like hmm. your own mind, you know, hmm. another survey for us to explore. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but sometimes it does, it does feel like that might be it. And, and interestingly, again, this makes me think of the definition, like there's a definition by Khan of what employee engagement is. And his perspective is employee engagement is the ability of individuals to bring their whole selves to work. Hmm. And those two rituals that you, you know, we found are the most correlated are actually about how you're feeling and who you are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Really, You know, like your background story. And so um, it's interesting to see like those little constellations of things, you know, forming. Um, So what would you like, what is the question that off of that back, back of this? You're like, this is the one I want us to explore next.
1: In our data or just in general? You
0: no, know, like moving like next, next big survey. You know, you and I are going to write a book one day, but until <laughs> then... <laughs>
1: Uh, well, it's 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 interesting because I think I'd like to explore more about this this sense of what is the right way to ensure that these rituals feel authentic and helpful versus a pro, you know pro forma and sort of, you know, unnecessary. because I do think that there's a way to enact any of these rituals in a hollow manner. That can do more damage than good. And I don't want to you and I have lots of conversations about how much do we try to force the leader to be responsible for the well-being. Mm-hmm. You and I are both on the the train of saying, no, 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 no this is a team's responsibility. So I don't want to say it's up to the leader to decide what's true and what's what's manipulative. But I do think that there's some aspects of these rituals that need to be really um, believed in by people. And the listening part of them is just as important as the inviting, um, you know, the questions themselves. It's what happens after you check in with someone emotionally, for example. Like, are you just going around checking the box and saying, oh, yeah, how okay, good. All right, let's move on. You know, that, that makes it worse, I think. And there's actually some interesting work on purpose as well, in a very similar vein, thinking about like, yes, if you want to convey your organization's purpose or your team's purpose through the um, conversations you have, the the mission statements that you write and so forth. But if you're not actually embodying those, it, 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 it almost makes it worse than not talking about a purpose at all. And I think like that's the same for rituals. Mm-hmm. They can be used.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've definitely engaged with people and even sometimes worked uh with companies where those rituals were like you could smell the um skepticism around them you could could smell it in the room like people might do it but they were like this is all bullshit (laughs) it didn't align with anything uh it didn't feel real um it was just a gimmick and i think it's you know it's like a lot of things you could integrate flexibility in a profound way that goes to every aspect of how you work or you can flex wash and like just Mm. say oh flexible employer but you're not um and that that intentionality is um is something that comes back and back and back over and over again about how to do that and and yeah i do agree it, definitely leaders have an important role to play it's why they get paid the big bucks but also i i really don't like this idea that employees supposedly don't it's like having a teenager in the house well no you want to be treated like an adult great it also <laughs> means that you're co-responsible for this yeah you know yeah So yeah, to me that that's a really interesting question to explore next. We have a a question from the audience, and coincidentally, I also wanted to ask you that: Mm -hmm. Are there other just you know rituals that you've seen that you that you love that you think are going to be an interesting add-on to?
1: Well, uh, so I will cite a friend of mine who works at Google in their uh, DEI group. Um, He has lots of teams that that he manages, and his ritual. This is a leader-driven ritual, but I think the whole team feels it sincere and participates. His ritual at the beginning of our meeting is to to check in with these two questions to the people around the table. One is, where is your time today? your, And the second is, where is your attention today? And, mm-hmm. and not restricted to these have to be work-related answers. And, and he says that that is just those two questions are a great way as a group, before they start doing the work itself, kind of level set on where everyone is. And I think those are great questions because I know that there are many times if I was in a meeting, say a faculty meeting and someone asked me that, I would say, you know, I have to tell you this, I didn't prepare for this meeting. This is not where my time and attention really feels like it should be right now. I've got a student crisis that I really should be attending and maybe I shouldn't be here. And <laughs> that that sometimes happens as well in their workplace where you know, it's a way to open up the possibility that maybe there's a better place for you to be at that moment, or if this is where everybody's head is at right now. And then knowing that allows everybody to really put their, their full selves into it because they've already gotten clarification and confirmation from others that we're all in this together. This is a focus point for us.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I do think like this brings about the importance of, of, I think, a skill set that leaders need to have these days, which is around, I want to say, facilitation Mm. and holding space for others, which maybe was not like as um, high on the list of skill sets a few years ago. But now like asking those questions, holding space, providing time, also having the right body language as people are answering this question, having, as you said, the right reactions, the right way of you know encouraging people of bringing on vulnerability and trust and all of these things um definitely has become something that's that's a lot more required these days mm-hmm. um but yeah, recently, I, we like a couple of questions that I love, but those require an actual like dedicated session. This isn't something you do in the beginning of a of an icebreaker. Actually, we ran this exercise last week um, with a team from a global company here in the region. One of the questions is, um, which value do you share with one of your parents, for example? Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. like a whole tangent, you know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. you learn so much about that person. Another question I love is... Um, what would you change about your childhood? Wow. Um, and the third one that we ran last week, we tried to pick the hard ones, uh, wow. was also tell me about a time you made a huge mistake and what you learned wow. from that.
1: Wow, that's so, a lot of psychological safety, which is probably something we should also talk about in this yeah. uh, you know conversation. Um, but what happened when you asked that last one about the mistake?
0: I was all good. Like uh, see, it was about me holding space for these people. So it was a group of maybe. I want to say 30. And I put them in in groups of five or sometimes in one on ones. It depends on the type of questions. Uh, And it's interesting, like as soon as the first person spoke and shared something truly like horrific, it anchored everybody and as you say, created the psychological safety to be like, okay, I can share something really terrible,
1: (laughs) you know. that's yeah. good because otherwise I'd think about it like, you know, it's like the interview question of what's your weakness? Oh, I just, I'm so strong that, you know, it's an excess of strength, right? Mm-hmm. My mistake was that I just worked so hard that I didn't sleep enough. Um, yeah. So I'm glad that people took it uh, and and it actually opened up in a vulnerable way. But, but psychological safety, um, for those who are familiar, is this concept, is this team environment safe for interpersonal risk-taking? And that includes things like admitting mistakes, asking questions. Also, in my research, I've looked at it in terms of how it's necessary for building relationships. Because true relationships depend on some kind of sense of vulnerability Um, you know, you can have a, a superficial friendship, in which case you've never revealed anything that isn't on your resume or on your LinkedIn profile, but, or you could have more of a real rich conversation about things like you said, about your childhood, about your, your value system, about previous mistakes that you've made. And I'm not going to do that in a team where I feel like it might be used against me at some point where, you know, even in the room, if I'm applauded for it, but then later on that rumor gets started or that, that project doesn't get assigned to me because people are carrying some sort of negative um, impression of me from it. So it is really important to establish that psychological safety before you dive into some of these more deep questions and rituals for each other. But at the same time, I will say that there's um, you don't we have kind of a chicken or egg situation, because if you never ask questions like some of those that you just had, you will never actually develop also psychological safety. So you have people are looking for proof that it's safe and you don't get proof until you actually <laughs> test it. So it's a combination of, I think, setting some norms and expectations right away. And this is a, a clear place where the leader can have a big role in going first and being mm-hmm. vulnerable um but you have to have it again as a regular part cuz people are going to be looking for repeated positive consequences to opening up to each other and if you you know only rarely have these conversations they're going to they're going to lose confidence that it's possible
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, psychological safety is one of them. And another thing that I wanted to discuss, and this, this touches a little bit upon um, the work that you did with Mark Mortensen um, around loneliness, but what was, for me, also very interesting um, in terms of the recommendations that you gave uh, was around how to create good teams, I want to say. You can right. rephrase it. But to me, it's like, we kind of, this the word team is overused. It's always used in the wrong context. And we don't really give teams the the rel, you know the appropriate tools and and constraints for them to actually be teams and to actually perform at the best of their abilities can you walk me through a little bit like what what's the modern teaming disease and and how we can fix it and and improve our outcomes
1: well, I will I will say um, so that that article then my MIT, MIT slow management review that you referred to as the one that we recently won the prize um, for we actually have a follow-up article uh, in a way that was in Harvard Business Review this spring that says do we even still need teams? Um, so I think they the one of the things to establish is that sometimes teams are used in in a way that actually again sort of makes things worse in that it creates, disconnection, cynicism, or, or just a sense of burnout because people are working so, so hard and they're not actually accomplishing uh, the best work because of the logistics involved or because the team's just not set up for success. So I will say, let's assume you're really committed and you want to make teams work. Otherwise you could find some other option, whether it's individual contributors, or we talked about co-acting groups in that HBR article as an alternative to teams. But but if you do think and you do believe that teams are going to be your best unit of work, and the reasons would probably be something about creativity. Um, collaboration, something about how a team's composition of different inputs and and backgrounds will create a greater sum than the individual parts. So we're big fans of teams, just to be clear. Um, But we're acknowledging that they're hard to accomplish well. And their article about workplace loneliness uh, talked about how some of the aspects of modern teams are chipping away at connections. And one of them is the fact that people or don't have stable membership rosters on teams. And that's a problem because if I'm going to open up to you and then you disappear on me the next week, I'm not going to feel that I got enough of that benefit relationship-wise as I could have. And so I need to know that these people are kind of in the circle of trust, or at least I'm trying to build the circle of trust, and I need to know who's in the circle. So that's one of them, trying to create a more stable set of team members as best you can. Um, Another one is having really clear roles. So we talked about sometimes teams now are getting disaggregated down to like the unit of work, which means that, you know, anybody can fill in this spot on the team. Oh, we need like a marketing expert to to put together that copy, or uh, we need somebody to run the numbers, let's grab someone from finance. And the less you feel like a whole person on the team, and the more you feel like you're just contributing this one type of task, the the less, well, again, you're gonna have an opportunity to create connections and relationships. Talk about team knowledge, like I've only gotten a sliver of information about you if I'm playing that kind of um, micro role. Another thing is thinking about um, how much are people on multiple teams at once? Mark has some longstanding history on this about multiple team membership. And again, it's great from an efficiency standpoint because you can devote every single hour of your workday to some kind of teamwork but it it undermines the strength of connections that people tend to feel because it's similar to being, it's not a case now that you don't know who's on the team, like the first one about stable membership, but it's about the fact that people's attention is dispersed across multiple teams. And therefore, you're. it's like having divided loyalties. You're going to not be as committed and invested in, in getting to know each other. And it's also just a quantity of time issue. You've now subtracted the, the full extent of your workday. Um, from, you know, something that can devote to this particular team. So those are some of the aspects. We also looked at how long the team lasts itself. And and certainly Agile teams have great time and place. And Agile teams, at least if you're following the formal Agile process, have check-ins and other types of forums to exchange information. But if you're only working with somebody for two weeks or three weeks at a time, even if it's intense, you're you're just not going to have the length of time that many people need to really get to know each other and really feel connected. And th- I'm not going to say this is an introvert-extrovert um, uh, dis- distinction because it, it's it's not just down to personality. But do think about someone who may be more reticent to open up to others. They may need a lot more repeated amounts of experiences together before they're comfortable. Even answering a question, like you said, even with psychological safety measures in place. So extended periods of time can help. And what does that mean? Well, that means that you might want to go back to kind of the old fashioned version of teams that we used to have before we got so darn efficient. Um, Or, you know, you might think about maybe you can't limit the number of teams people are on or how long they last, but you can at least create some kind of home team. So we talked about, like, is there a way where at least you can ground people in some community at work? Mm -hmm. Maybe um, it's a team that lasts for longer. Maybe it's a team that's more important and takes a long amount of more amount of time in your day. Or maybe it's a, not kind of directly related to your research, but provides that kind of foundation for connections. And those maybe like an employee research a resource group, for example, could be a form of that. So we do think that teams have the greatest potential to create connection, um, and they also have the greatest potential to to connect people to a purpose. But they they are not easy to accommodate and to to promote in this day and age with so much complexity at work.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. It's funny. I always reflect, you know, as you're talking and I was, I've actually always been lucky to always be on this on, on like, stable teams my whole yeah. life that must be why i love teams so much um and actually i, I asked karma to post this in the comments uh, we wrote an article um early in the pandemic about when teams are relevant to the type of work versus yeah. not like there's also a modern disease of assigning a team to everything and sometimes group work is way better you know and so <laughs> karma is going to post the link to that we have four amazing questions from the audience i want to ask i want to ask so the first one in terms of um, do you think personal knowledge is more important in more diverse teams or do you think that this personal knowledge is important regardless?
1: Uh, I, I think it's important regardless. Uh, but I think underlying your question is maybe another question, which is which do you do first in diverse mm-hmm. teams? So we, going back to the research, we know that diverse teams are not necessarily as successful as homogenous teams. And I'm I'm sorry to say that that's the reality of the data that we have, unless there is this strong sense of psychological safety in place that enables people to bring forward all the diverse aspects of themselves and resolve conflict in a collaborative way. So how do you get to that psychological safety? It goes back to that question. How do you get to being able to resolve conflict effectively in a a truly diverse team where there might be sort of fault lines that you're concerned about in advance, people coming maybe from two different organizations that have merged, for example, or two different parts of the world that don't historically get along? I would probably start with, with professional knowledge sharing as it does feel a little bit more safe. But I don't think you're going to accomplish the benefits of diversity in your team unless you also get to the personal level, because that's when people can find a deeper level of connection.
0: Beautiful. Another question here is, do we think that this level of connection is less important in organizations that have more individual contributors? Like, say, I don't know, a customer service company. Mm.
1: Um, I don't, I think it's, this this is now a question about humanity and what do people need at work? And I think this sense of purpose um, and connection are are twin fundamental human needs. Um, and McClellan's has like a, a learned needs theory, that motivation that's in some ways similar to the Maslow's hierarchy of needs that you talked about. Um, but everyone desires to have a sense of belonging. Um, in any any major group that they're part of. And everyone also desires to have a sense of impact and and influence in, in a positive manner. I, I really believe that fundamentally, that, that no matter what work structure you're in, those are needs. So I do think that they're still relevant. And if you're an individual um, contributor, you're going to lose some of the assets of a team in terms of like a ready-made forum. But you can create your own routines. And if you have a good relationship with your manager, even that relationship can be strengthened through some of these rituals.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Another question here, which also relates a little bit to, you know, that interview you were referring to earlier um, that surprised you. Are there any circumstances where deep interpersonal connections at work get in the way of performance?
1: Mm. I got this question last week, actually. Um, I was presenting to a group of people about workplace loneliness specifically and um, connection. And people kind of said, yeah, but then I can't give them negative feedback or then I can't fire them if I need to. And I, I, I think that's a limited view of what a relationship is. Um, you you might have to change the nature of the personal relationship. If you go straight from knowing each other personally to we go out for drinks and dinner together after work, you've now crossed it from a relationship to a friendship. And I think that can be tricky. If you now feel that you've got multiple types of obligations to each other, not just in the work sense, but also in the interpersonal sense outside of work. And that doesn't mean you should limit friendships either. We know from Gallup and other research that shows that, you know, those can be really powerful motivators to stay at a job too. But I think if you're struggling with how much personal information is too much, perhaps you're trying to divorce it too much from the work itself. I think that you can still be interpersonally connected and share a lot about information about each other, but always with an eye towards how will this help us work together better in the future, instead of just how will this get us to be chummy uh, and lifelong friends?
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And you're making me think to something I used to do, like, um, I actually in my first job where I was there for nine years, and it felt like family by the end of it. um, I had a lot of people also even reporting into me that were that that became friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I always used to say to them, and it was hard to digest, and it was hard to be disciplined about it. But I really tried is, we are coworkers first, mm. and so if 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 our two relationships come to a moment where they are, um, you know, calling for two different behaviors, I will refer to our relationship as coworkers first because that's what we owe to our company, and then you and I can be upset at each other as friends. That's fine. We will find a way to mend that. But it was about like deciding which relationship took precedence in a specific decision or, or towards a specific circumstance, which arguably is a very cold hearted approach. But it was the only one that, you know, was felt fair to the
1: company. Well, but that shows respect for your employees because yes. you were explicit. And you also, yeah. going back to your conversation, we're not teenagers, we're adults. You were, also, you were explicit about it. You gave them fair understanding and set expectations about what would come down to it if if there was a a um, you know a debate between which was more important your friendship or your coworker status, so I think that that's the fair and right thing to do when you have relationships. It's okay to talk about that and to anticipate there's going to be some awkward moments and some challenges and and together figure out how you're going to handle it.
0: Yeah, and let's we have one last question about leadership, and then I'll take us to a rapid fire. Uh, just what is one advice you give to leaders today when it comes to creating a healthy and
1: stimulating work environment? What's one thing? What's
0: your favorite advice these days? And I'll also share my favorite advice.
1: Well, I, I mean, I sound a bit like a broken record here, but I really do think it's it's creating a sense of belonging and connection at work is not a nice to have. It mm. truly is the thing that will help your organization succeed in the future because regardless of what happens with the economy, which will put some, you know, some dampering on some people's ability to quit and change jobs or find a new job. Again, it's a it's a human uh, craving that we all have. And the best companies will satisfy that craving.
0: Oh, I couldn't agree more. Um, you know, one example I love to give just to reinforce what you're saying is um, there are examples of companies all the way back to the 16th century investing in building entire towns to host their communities of workers and to create a home for them and we can't bring ourselves to spend 5 minutes on a problem per day you know like so much of this is now made easy we have tools we have technology we have communication platforms you know what have you we don't have to build a whole city for people to be housed <laughs> and yet we don't we don't spend time on that i feel like this is something that previous organizations understood that we've lost along the way mm-hmm. that we have a duty of care towards the humanity uh, you know in our companies and that's such a great piece of advice and my favorite one is kind of just um very practically i think people sometimes you know leaders have so much to do these days mm-hmm. um they have their business goals to achieve they have to deal with the russia ukraine war they have to like you know manage everybody's performance they have to facilitate psychological trust they you know like all of that um and I think it can get very overwhelming but yeah. what I've said and if if you know some people have watched my keynote they might have heard me say it I said it said it recently on a podcast and it's like my it's my Brene Brown moment um you know how like you're only successful if you repeat things so I'm going to repeat it one more time which is that leaders do Every single day, you know, good leaders look at their KPIs. They look at their PNLs. They look at their customer satisfaction. They look at all these indicators of the health of their organization. And so all I'm asking is that when you catch yourself doing that, because you're going to say like, oh, my God, it's so hard. I have to, on top of it, ask questions and create rituals and all of that. All I'm saying is the next time you find yourself looking at a hard KPI, or doing something that furthers your customer satisfaction or your, you know, your market. Take five minutes to say, what am I doing today that's going to further engagement, connection, mutual knowledge? Five minutes. Like, just give it, create that Pavlov reflex Uh that the next time you look at a KPI, you also ask yourself how you're being intentional about that. And, and I kid you not, one thing at a time and one day at a time. And in a year, you will find that your team or your organization is transformed. Like baby mm-hmm. steps, but we'll get there. That's mm-hmm. my, my favorite advice. And with that, Connie, um, I think we could talk for another two hours. But um, I'm going to wind us down into our rapid fire questions. Um, these are four statements that I'm going to start and I want you to finish. Um, and so are you ready? to? Uh, uh,
1: yes, I am. I can't wait.
0: All right. The first one is great employee experience is.
1: Um, Let's see. Great employee experience is. I would say is um, holistic. And by that, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I really also I I just want to make sure I get out there. I'm a big fan of working hard and high accountability for high performance results. Again, this goes back to people want that too. So I don't want to just focus on the the interpersonal aspects. I want to say, yes, a good experience is holistic. I feel like I'm doing my best work. I also feel like I'm working with the best people and that this isn't a, a joy ride that we're on together. (laughs)
0: couldn't agree more. Also plenty of data to support you. Uh, I think we wrote a piece about this in on cosmic centers, we'll find it and post it, but essentially managers who are both demanding on the performance side and understanding on the human side are those that end up having the highest performers on their teams. So I couldn't agree more with you. I love that choice of word. What's a book that, you know, these days you think every leader should read?
1: Uh, So that for that, I'll go with Amy Edmondson's The Fearless Organization book. Uh, until I write my own book on psychological safety. (laughs) Um, But it's a great book. And Amy is such a leader in the space and a mentor of mine. And and so I want to pump up um, her work. She also has a great book on teaming, which talks about when you're combining people across organizations um, as well. So both of those books are highly recommended. Magical.
0: The next one is, The Ideal Workplace Is?
1: Fun. (laughs) (laughs) What? Uh, I mean, I really do feel that, uh, you know, work is a serious business, um, but if you're doing it, you in know, a, in a, with, I, uh, I mean, Michael, with everyone, this is why I'm working with you on, you know, on this project, Marilyn, is I want to work with good, smart, you know, fun people. Uh, and I do think that that's possible. In my classrooms, I say we're going to work really hard together, but we're going to have fun too. So that that's, I think, a marker of, yeah. of workplaces.
0: I saw this on LinkedIn the other day and Tala shared it with us, like a quote that says a massively underrated skill is being easy to work with. <laughs> I echo that. And then the last one, what is, you can't say rituals, you have to pick something else, but what is the secret ingredient to a great
1: employee experience? Um, I don't want to repeat myself. So let me think of something else. Um, I. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's maybe the secret is a good match. And this goes back to one thing we haven't talked about too much is the selection process. And how do you find out who's going to be a good match? Um, you know, I think that, 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 that you'll find, I like the phrase when people talk about what's your highest and best use and matching people to the, the teams and the task. So I think that that does require some knowledge sharing before teams are formed. Um, but that would be one thing I would say is really pay attention to the matching process.
0: Such a great answer. I have so much to say about that. but uh, You know, I always say, like, when people were up in arms about Elon Musk, like, first, I know, I know, I shouldn't say this, it's very controversial. I was like, listen, maybe what will end up happening is he will have people working for him who actually really want to work that way, and it'll be a great match. What do you care?
1: Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly.
0: Um, so, yeah. On that note, Connie, uh, once again, thank you so much. This is the only the beginning, not the end of um, our collaboration together, but what a beautiful beginning and uh, beautiful results and a lot to learn and and to to act on so once again, super grateful to you, super grateful to every single, we should say that we had like 920 responses, but we have to exclude a few. So a big thank you to all 900, and I think 27 uh, people who actually went on our survey and, and, and answered it, whether they qualified or not for our final analysis. Um, you know, I know I spammed you. I'm sorry. I love all of you, but it was for a good purpose um Thank and you. then of course our attendees and their great questions and their engagement um and just one last item is uh tomorrow's session is at 1 p.m dubai time and i'll be joined by jose santos those of you who have um, been there since the first cosmic conference jose has always been part of the conference. Um, he was part of our two debate panels in the two previous years. Him and I are going to like muse. We're going to have a very philosophical conversation about how to lead in an emergent world. We're going to discuss the concept of the firm and what it means for the future of work. We're going to discuss the importance of culture and history and geography in companies. Although everybody wants to be remote and universal, we both actually don't believe that that can be the case. Sure. But tune in for more uh, and th- so that's tomorrow at 1 p.m uh, Dubai time you can find all of that information on our site uh, please do you know go and re-watch sessions or uh, sign up for the remaining three sessions of this conference and with that Connie uh, we've come to an end of our time together thank you so much I'm signing us out and speak thank thank you